Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to episode two of the GCSE Physics Revision Podcast with me, Helpful Hints. Sit back and relax, or get up and get moving, whatever it is you do when you're listening, and let's get straight to learning some physics. This episode is for both combined and separate science, and looks at power and specific heat capacity. If we say someone is powerful, what do we mean by that? We could say that they do a lot of things in a short space of time. So when we talk about it in terms of energy, we are saying it's the amount of energy transferred per second. This is what we mean by power in physics. It's the rate of energy transfer. We also do see this crop up in electricity, but we will cover this in a later episode. What? I hear you say. Wow, that's exactly right, actually. How did you guess? We measure these in units called watt. Nope, that wasn't actually a question. Watts. W-A-T-T-S. One watt is equal to one joule of energy transferred in one second. If this is the case, then the formula is energy transferred divided by the time taken. Just like in episode one, we should really make sure that our energy is in joules and time is in seconds. Sometimes, though, we can measure power in what we call kilowatts. These aren't as scary as they sound, but help us to say longer numbers with less effort. Kilo basically means thousand, so your kettle probably has a power of around 2000 watts. You could check it now by looking on the plug. We can say this as 2 kilowatts. Do you see how much easier that was? This means then that the kettle will transfer 2000 joules of energy for each second it is on. That's quite a lot, actually. Last episode, we spoke about efficiency. Remember, it was our useful energy divided by our total input energy. Well, because it is what we call a ratio, it's a unitless number. We can actually do the same with our power. All we need to do is change the word energy for power. So if you're given useful power and total power, we just need to divide useful by total to get our efficiency. Two points to remember though, it should be less than one still, or otherwise you've gone wrong, and we times by 100 to get a percentage efficiency. Okay, let's head back to our kettle. What is this kettle actually doing? Well, it's transferring energy to the water so we can have a nice cup of tea in the morning before school. It's causing the particles in the water to move faster, which in turn causes the temperature to increase. Okay, we're now going to move on to looking at something called specific heat capacity. To make it slightly easier, we're going to break it down a bit first. Now, before I was a teacher, I worked on a beach, and there was nothing nicer than having a dip in the sea after a long, hot day. But on the way down to the water's edge, the sand would always burn my feet. So why was this? The sea and the sand had both been in the sun for the same length of time, so this means they'd both had the same amount of energy given to them but the sand managed to heat up a lot faster. The water in the sea is able to hold more energy and have a smaller temperature increase. This means it has a larger capacity to hold that energy. So before we go on, we should actually talk about the equation. A little tip for you here, whenever we see the term specific, we're referring to per kilogram. This makes it easier to compare different objects as it wouldn't be fair to compare a litre of water with a tablespoon of honey. Specific heat capacity, then, is the energy required to increase the temperature of one kilogram of a substance by one degree. The units are joules per kilogram degrees Celsius. Lucky for you, though, the formula is given to you in the exam. 
it's our change in energy is equal to the mass times the specific heat capacity, which has the symbol C, times by the change in temperature. You can sometimes see this written as a little triangle and the letter T. The triangle just means delta, which means change in. Okay, there's lots of words there, but what does this mean in real terms? Let's compare two identical pans. One has one kilogram of water in, the other one kilogram of oil. We supply the same amount of energy to both. After this, the water increases its temperature by 20 degrees, but when we check the oil, it's increased its temperature by 40 degrees. Which do you think then is going to have the higher specific heat capacity? We might instinctively think that because the oil has made a bigger change in temperature, then it must have a bigger specific heat capacity. But this goes against what our definition was. It is the energy needed to increase the temperature by a degree. We have the same energy going to both of these pans, yet the oil has managed to double the temperature difference of the water. It therefore must have needed half the energy to increase its temperature by one degree. So its specific heat capacity must also be half. As long as you keep that definition in the front of your mind here, you should be okay if you have to do some explaining. Specific heat capacity is also the first of our required practicals. We need to try and work out the specific heat capacity of a metal here. You may have done this at school or seen it done already. Some common things you need to remember though are that we should insulate the metal we're heating so that all the energy goes into the block and stays there, and we try to ensure the heat energy from the water goes to the block as quickly as possible. Here, we could be asked to work out the specific heat capacity from a graph, but that's quite hard to do on a podcast. The last thing we'll look at in today's episode then is how that heat might travel in a solid when we supply energy to it. Leave a metal spoon in your pan when cooking pasta and you might find that you burn yourself when you come to stir it. Leave a wooden spoon, however, and you should be fine. Why is this? It's all down to something called conduction. You've probably heard about conductors and insulators from electricity, but that's a story for another podcast. Today, we're talking about thermal conductors and insulators. Metals, it turns out, are great conductors of heat. The particles of the metal are vibrating slightly, and so when we heat one end up, these particles vibrate more. This causes them to bump into the particles next to them, transferring some of their energy to those ones. They bump into others, and so the chain goes on and on. Metals are good conductors of heat and electricity because of their free electrons. Not all metals conduct heat the same though. Copper is better than steel, for example, so a copper pan will be better at heating our pasta than a steel one. Sometimes though, we don't want to transfer this heat. Maybe we want to keep our homes warm, or ourselves. In this case, we want an insulator. Head up to your loft and you'll probably find some insulation up there. This will have lots of air gaps in to stop the heat from escaping through the roof. Air is a great thermal insulator. Where else might you find air being used in this way in your home? Double glazed windows use this trap air to keep the heat inside as well, where it belongs. Okay, episode two is done and dusted. Join me next week where we'll look at how else this thermal energy can travel and maybe catch some waves. Thanks for listening and speak to you soon. Music by Kevin McLeod. 